We'll be looking at the text this morning. We're going to be in Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We've been working our way through Amos over the last, uh, just over a month. Uh, we, we will finish Amos this month um, in the month of June. I know some of you are, are thinking, okay, this is getting a little weighty, a little heavy. Um, we're trying to, I was talking to Marvin this morning, we're trying to balance, right, like handling a book like this well. Um, and also knowing that the weightiness, the heaviness of it, we can only sit under that for so long. Um, and trying to, to balance those things. If you haven't been with us over the last month, Amos is a prophetic book. Um, it, it's, it's roughly 28, 2900 years old. Um, Amos was a layman, was a shepherd who became a prophet as the Lord called him. Um, and he served, you know, in, in, in the mid-5th century B.C. So, um, sorry, 8th century B.C., not 5th century. Um, so, he, he was ministering and had a prophetic word for the northern kingdom. At this point in Israel's history, they've divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. There's ten of the twelve tribes have gone to the north. Two tribes have remained in the south. Amos is from the south, and he is now ha- has a prophetic message for the north. And the message has not been pleasant. It's been, it's been difficult to hear because... The Lord isn't pleased. Um, He isn't pleased with the neighboring nations and the atrocities that they've committed. And he isn't pleased with his people who have failed to seek him. Who have failed to rightly image and and to show themselves having been transformed by him. And so we're going to continue this morning. Um, I, I want to make just a caution, right? Because at, at this point, you get a sense of where Amos is going. You've gotten a sense of the heaviness and the weightiness of it, um, that he is concerned with both um, moral actions and the atrocities that are, have been committed, but also just our hearts um, in the way that we perceive and, and pursue God and that religion doesn't cover it up. Um, and, and I think if we're not careful... At this point in Amos, we can begin to be like the smug little sibling who's watching our brother or sister get in trouble. And we're like, okay, this is about Israel. And we just kind of sit there with arms crossed watching dad like crush them, going, glad it's you and not me. Right? And you got that smirk on your face that you're ready to wipe off as soon as dad turns around. Right? And so you're, you're kind of poking at your sibling a little bit, thinking, this is all about you and I'm innocent. And if we're not careful, we, we believe this was an old message for, for a nation. And we're getting to look in and we're um, uninvolved and removed. And it's for them and it's not for us. And yet, Matthew 7 reminds us that there will be a day, right, where we will stand before God. And, and in Matthew 7, Jesus just kind of gives this quick little vignette of folks standing before God saying, okay, let us in. And he says, yeah, I don't know you. And they say, but look at all the things we did. We cast out demons, and they just start listing all their religious activity. And he reminds them, but I don't know you. Right? That is, that is our right warning that Amos is for us as well. That is, they're being dealt with, is they're being reminded that their religious activity does not cover up their sin and their shortcomings, and their lack of trusting God, that we would be reminded that we too will stand before God someday, 
And that our religious behavior and our religious things that we have done are not what give us access to the Father. They don't cover up hidden sin. They don't cover up the things going on. It is a relationship with our Savior, with our Rescuer in Christ. And so let's just be cautious not to cross our arms and smugly look and shake our heads at the, the Israelites and not check our own hearts as well. Let's pick up um, in chapter 5 and verse 18. Last week, the first half of chapter 5, um, the reminder was, return to me. Right? Like, I, I, return to me. Don't go back to the things you're doing. Return to me. And he then picks up in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kayun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. All right, so the scene that Amos is continuing here is that the people have misunderstood, they've misconceived what the day of the Lord is. And in their history, when God intervenes, when God shows up, it is for their good, for their benefit, and it's typically miraculous and wonderful, and they remember it and they rejoice in it. So we can look, and we've talked about this a lot, but we've looked in in Egypt. God shows up to rescue his people who have been slaves for 400 years, right? He does numerous miracles, signs, and wonders to finally break Pharaoh, to remove his people from enslavement, and takes them to make make them his. But we also can remember um, other stories, stories that maybe you remember as a kid of David and Goliath, right? That God shows up in that moment to allow David to defeat Goliath. Or we have the story of Gideon, who goes into battle, right? And, and this is in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8, this story. But he goes in with thousands, and God continues to whittle down his army, right? All the way to 300. And then they go into battle, a group that numbered somewhere around 135,000. So 135,000 to 300. Why? So that God would be shown as having intervened. That it was God who rescued them. It was not their power and their might. It was His hand who had delivered them. And so throughout Israel's history, when God shows up, they win. When God shows up, it is for their good. When God shows up, their enemies are sent in flight. So this idea of the day of the Lord, of God coming... Right has now been understood of as whatever enemies we have, they're going away. 
that God will judge them. He will destroy them. We will be set apart. The nations will know us and they will glory in us because we are his and he is ours. And so the day of the Lord had become this, this phrase and this idea of it will be our greater redemption when he once again shows his might and we are the beneficiaries of it. And so they had, this is what they believed when God would come and judge, that this is what would happen and everyone would be judged but them. And they felt secure. They felt secure in the fact that because God has been on our side and, our, and for our behalf throughout our history, it will only continue. And now they're looking around and they have one of their, their strongest militaries in their history. They have wealth beyond what they've typically had in their history. Their boundaries are large and secure. There's peace and stability and stable leadership. And they're looking at their circumstances and they're finding security in them. And because of that, when Amos comes in and says, whoa, 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 wait a second. The day of the Lord is not what you think. And he is not pleased with you. That because everything else, all their circumstances were good, they're like, whatever, Amos. And maybe the perception that we would have here is, is you are in a major city and you're walking down the street and there's a street preacher with a sign that says the end is near, right? Or something about doomsday, right? And the flippancy in which you're able to walk by and be like, whatever. This is kind of what's going on with Amos. That they're going, man, things are good. Why, are, why do you have to be a downer? Things are good. The Lord's for us. And Amos is saying, trying to shake them awake and out of the doldrums and saying, the day of the Lord is not as you think. And the Lord is not pleased. And you are in grave danger. And so he is continuing for five years, roughly, to, to minister. Right? To, to, to be somewhat repetitive in his message, trying to draw their attention. And so what he describes here in chapter 5 is an absolute nightmare, right? I want you to, to imagine the scene, right? Where in, in the darkness that you are out and a lion comes after you. And you are fleeing from a lion. And as soon as you think you've gotten away and you begin to take a breath, you meet a bear that is just as ferocious wanting to destroy you. And so now, right, you've gone from the lion to the bear, and now you've escaped both somehow miraculously, and you get into your house, right, and the picture now is you, okay, I'm safe. I'm secure. Can you believe I just got away from a lion and a bear? Oh, my word, what is going on? And a snake bites you. Right? It's the stuff of a nightmare, right? Where you just go from one scene of horror to the next scene of horror to the next scene of horror. And Amos is saying, that is your future. Like, that is what it will be like when God comes for you. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You're anticipating this. You're wanting this. You're longing for this. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness. It is not light. It is if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? It's like you're letting down your guard and you're relaxing. You think you're in your safe place and you're not. You temporarily are getting away and your circumstances seem to be okay. And it will not stay that way. It will not last. Why? Why? He continues then in verse 21. 
Because I hate and despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Remember, in the first part of chapter 5, God has said, look, it's because of the lack of justice that you are showing people. Because of the lack of justice, I'm coming for you. If you look back just briefly at verses 10, 11, and 12 in chapter 5, it says, look, they, they hate justice. Right? They try to silence the judge. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Um, Verse 11 is excessive taxation on the poor. Like you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. And then you build houses of hewn stone. Right? He's saying like you are ostentatious and showing off as you have trampled on behalf, on the backs of the weak and the poor in your society. Verse 12, I know many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous, you take a bribe, and you turn aside the needy in the gate. He's saying like, look, you pervert justice at every turn. You, you want those who have money and power are able to buy the outcome they want. And when the weak and when the poor come and cry out, plean for mercy, plean for righteousness, plean for justice, you laugh and scoff at them because they have no power and you do. And because of these things, right, now they're going in and they're continuing to be religious and they're doing their religious duty and diligence. And listen, what the Lord says, I hate it. I hate your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies when you gather. I don't enjoy it. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Your peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. He just says, look, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to listen. Take it away. I hate it. I despise it. All of the language here is strong and it's violent and it's harsh. And God is saying, you are being religious and it makes me sick. I hate it. I hate it. What is going on is that they are moving and they're doing these things. They're going in the, at the right, on the right days and in the right holidays. They are doing all the right things on the surface. And then they're going out and they're taking bribes and they're perverting justice. And they're turning away the, the weak and the poor. And they're building their wealth on the backs of their brothers and sisters. And they're enslaving people who once, they were once slaves themselves. God is saying, I hate it. Because you are claiming to be meeting with me and you're not being transformed. There's no change. There's no difference. Right? Imagine this. Imagine the claim of saying, I have met with God. And then nothing changes. Nothing transforms. Nothing looks any different. You're claiming God isn't that good or isn't that great or isn't that different or isn't able or isn't powerful or can't transform you. Right? Like you're making a claim saying, hey, whatever he is, how I am is okay. Instead of seeing him as holy and righteous and just and good. The idea here. Um, is maybe think of, of Mother's Day, right? Especially um, maybe if your mother is, is older, is a grandmother, a great-grandmother now, and what they want for Mother's Day is not things. They want you. They want time. 
They want a relationship. They want to do something with you. And so if you go through the motions and you do the card and you do the gift and you kind of do just the, the, the basic, hey, I've met the expectation of Mother's Day. Here you go. You don't say I never gave you anything, right? Mother doesn't feel loved. Grandmother doesn't feel loved. Right? They're like, okay, yeah, you did something. But what I wanted was you. I wanted your heart. I wanted to be connected to you. What God is saying is this, is yeah, you're doing the things and you're not connecting with me. You're not coming to me. You don't want me. You think this somehow gets you off the hook. That you can go and do whatever you want all week long and as long as you come in and sing the right songs and do the right sacrifices, it somehow clears up and justifies your week. And he's like, but I see it and I know it. And you're leaving these places where you're singing about the glory of God. And you are living in a way that disparages my good name and my character. And so I want you to know I hate it. And I do not receive it. And I do not accept it. And you might as well stop. Right? This would have been shocking to a people. But we, we were just in First John, right? And First John says, look, you can make all the claims about salvation and knowing God you want. But is there any evidence to back up your claim? Right? Do you love God? Do you obey God? And do you love his people? If those things aren't present, then you can claim to know Jesus all you want. And you're a liar. And you don't know him even though you claim to. Right? First John says, look, there has to be evidence to back up our claims. And what God is saying in Amos is the same thing. You're doing, right, your duty, your worship, all these things. And I am not okay with it. I'm not pleased with it because nothing is being transformed. Nothing is changing. And so it is abhorrent to me. In verse 25, he says, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So he's going back to the exodus of them being removed from Egypt. He says, Did you bring me, right, sacrifices then? The answer would be yes, we did. But he says, What I wanted was obedience, right? And at that point, you knew that. You knew what I wanted was you. Listen to how Jeremiah says this. In chapter 7, verse 22. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to you, to your fathers, or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. What Amos is doing here in verse 25 is he's like, look, yeah, there were sacrifices, there were offerings, but what I wanted was for you to be mine, for you to hear me and to respond, to walk with me, to be my people, to obey me. It wasn't about these religious actions. It was about relationship. It was about you being mine and me being yours. That's what I longed for. That's what I wanted. He says, that's what I asked of you. And so he says in verse 26, So you will take up Sikath, your king, and Kion, your star god. And he's beginning to name these Assyrian gods. One, the god of war. The other that was referenced by Saturn as kind of being a star god when they could see planets. And he's like, you're going to hold up these banners that have them on them. That you have made in your image 
in these false gods. But I, the sovereign God of hosts, will watch as you carry them out in exile. The judgment and punishment is coming, and you are going to be led away because Assyria is coming for you. And so your little gods and your little idols and your little trinkets will not save you. I'll watch you carry them out. Because I am sovereign over all, and you have traded the one who made the stars for the one that you've made in your image called the star god. How foolish. And he tells them in verse 24 what he wants. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. So he says, look, when you leave your songs and your sacrifices and your worship, what should have happened was you should have looked more like me and justice and righteousness should have flown throughout your culture and your country and your history and your lives. And instead, it's a dry riverbed of injustice and bribes, of perversion, of religious responsibility and duty with no soul, no heart, no life. What I wanted was my image to flow throughout the lands. Because God is just and he is righteous. And he says, so let justice roll down like waters because you've met with me. Let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream because you're connected to me. And then the nations will see you and they'll want and long for what you have because God will be glorified and will be seen as good and right and just. And he says, and you have flaunted it and you've assumed that you don't have to do it and I'll still be for you. Martin Luther King Jr. made Amos 5 famous right in one of his speeches where he quotes this as he talked about injustice in the world. It's important for us to remember, right, as as God rescued his people, this people out of Egypt, that he didn't do it because they had done something worth being saved for. He simply rescued them. He redeemed them. He bought them back and made them his own. And then as he walked through the wilderness and they met him in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, at that point, after their rescue, after their redemption, after he had bought them, then he gave them the law and asked for obedience. It was never meant to be a a ladder of morality that would allow them to get to him. It was never meant to be a way to please him or to satisfy him. They were already redeemed and already rescued. It was merely meant to give them a clear pattern for what life should look like following him. That obedience was a way of saying, I've met with you and I've been transformed with you. And my obedience didn't save me. My obedience is my way of honoring and worshiping my father who has rescued me. And what Amos is saying is, look, you, you assume that doing the right things for the wrong heart, right, that that's enough. And what I'm saying is God never wanted that. He wanted you to look like him. He wanted you. He wanted to know you and for you to know him, that you would be transformed. And so this morning, church, here's where we're going to finish. I think we, as the church, can get overwhelmed Sometimes, especially by the rhetoric in the news right now, of systemic injustice, right? And it's just this constant, everything's unjust, everything's broken. Every, and so we can look at it and go, wow, that's a lot, and it's really big, and it's overwhelming, and so I just don't do anything, right? It, it would be very easy to respond that way, that it just feels overwhelming, or that we're being preached at, or who's even right? It's just noise. Or maybe we ignore it. 
right? We ignore it because things in our life are okay. We're good. And so it doesn't really affect me and I'm busy. And so we don't feel like we're sinning because we're, we're taking care of me and mine. And it doesn't affect me and so we're good. Or maybe we look at it and we say, hey, if the system doesn't work for you, you deserve it. Right? You obviously did something unjust. And so you've got your due punishment. Church, would we be reminded this morning of two things? One, what we deserve is what Amos is promising. Right? What we deserve is death. Because we are all sinners and rebels against a holy God. None of us are standing here guiltless and innocent. Right? If justice is coming, it's coming for us all. And we are, we are the unjust. And what God says he wants is for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so the call then is to reflect the image of our God who is just and who is righteous to live in a way that would say we know the righteous justice king. And so righteousness and justice are marked in our lives and then we begin to image it out in the world that we live in. And so look, you may yourself never come face to face face to face with systemic injustice. You never may be a lobbyist or someone in this this big scene. But here's what we can begin to do. Instead of just getting busy and ignoring it because it doesn't affect us, being indifferent of, of assuming things about others, right? We can be reminded that Scripture has called us to love the widows and the orphans and the aliens, those who cannot affect their situation. And here's how we begin to do this today. We enter into the mess of other people's lives. Simple. We just enter into people's lives. You get to know people. People that don't look like you, who don't talk like you, who don't think like you, who don't vote like you. You don't wait for people to look like you and then say, okay, we're similar enough, now we can hang out. We pursue folks. And one of the ways we do it is we shut up and we listen and we learn. And here's the thing. You're not going to like everything that everyone's going to say. You may not agree with it. You certainly aren't going to like it. Um, I, I've sat down with folks in Pampa and, and they've made claims about the way things work here. That I'm like, ah, that's not my experience. And I don't really like hearing you say that. But right, but I listen. And, and, I, and I take it, right? And I'm going to spit out the, the bones and, and chew on the stuff that's good. So this happened to us all the time in Yemen. We'd be out interacting with someone and they would say, here's what you think. You think that God had sex with Mary. I do not think that. Yes, you do. That's what we were told you think. That's not what I think. Can I explain? No, that's what you think. Right? And that's maddening, Right? To be told, here's what you believe, here's what you think, and I'm not even going to ask you. I'm just going to assume. So church, we can enter into people's lives here, right, and not assume that we know their experience. Not assume that we know their situation. Not assume that their, their story looks just like ours. And we can listen and we can learn. And we can be reminded that Jesus came for the sick and the broken, not for the well. That he interacted with those whose society had already pushed to the side. And so we can begin to image and reflect him by doing it 
ourselves. The second thing we can do is we can be present and consistent with them, where it's not one meal, one lunch, one conversation, one time. And let's just be honest, it's going to put you out, and it's going to be inconvenient. Okay? I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, if you go hang out with people who aren't like you, who need justice, who need to see the image of God reflected, it's going to be awesome and easy all the time. It's not. They're going to call you at inconvenient moments. They're going to need more from you than you want to give. And in this, we are reminded that we are beginning, right, to reflect the image of Emmanuel, God with us, who does not leave us, who does not forsake us, who comes for us and stays with us. And listen, look, look, boundaries are an important thing, right? But we can afford to be put out a little bit for behalf of those who have never had someone lean in at all who've never given anything on their behalf at all. Because that looks like Jesus. And guess what? The world and your human nature and society and and your friends and your family and a lot of good, faithful church folk are going to say this is dumb, crazy, stupid stuff. But it looks like Jesus. Right? And that's how we know we're walking in the right path. Um, Listen, when... And I'm hesitant to ever to share personal stuff when we're talking like this. But um, Carmen and I, two weeks after we bought our first home, this was over a decade ago, we invited an eighth grade kid. We had no children to come live with us for a while. Who was just in a rough situation, and it was supposed to be a two week deal that turned into two years. Um, and I and I had people sit down with me. Um, pastors of other churches that were say like, you're a fool if you do this. Right? And I just remember thinking, but I think this is what Jesus would do. And guess what? It was not a lot of fun. There was a lot of unenjoyable things, and it cost me a lot of money, and it cost me a lot of headache, and it cost me a lot of broken things, and it cost me, it, like it humbled me in a way of like, you think like hanging out with you for a couple weeks is going to do someone a lot of good. Watch this, Right? And it was painful. And yet in it, the Lord worked and moved. But it looked like Jesus. And that's not to, to applaud us. I'm just saying that the, to do this probably means that a lot of people are saying, stop it, don't do that. That probably means you're on the right path. Right? Because it looks like Jesus. Because what did the religious leaders tell Jesus all the time? Do you know who they are? Don't hang out with them. Don't eat with them. Don't interact with them. Come and be with us. And Jesus continued to pursue the broken and the outcast, the sick, and those who needed it. Why? Because he had a message of hope and of transformation that this, the way it is right now, doesn't get the final say. In Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Listen, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Right? He just is beginning to say, he came to transform every situation. The broken, the captive, 
the mourning, the hurt, to bring comfort, to bring peace, to bring redemption, to bring freedom. That is the message of hope that you are the recipient of. That God has freed you from your sins, not just forgiven them. That God has brought hope and peace and joy in your life. And so we have that message and we know that it's in Jesus and that it's real and that his spirit is alive and that he'll meet people in broken situations and transform it for all of eternity. Like that's what we're looking to do. That's the message of hope that we have. And in doing that, in doing that, this happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15. For we then are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. But listen, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we aren't like so many peddlers of God's word, but we are as men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. Jesus has told us, your fervent public worship that does not affect the rest of your life, I hate it. Church, hear that this morning. If this is it, he hates it. Unless you're beginning to look like Jesus. And then that's affecting those that he brings into your life on a daily basis. For his name and his sake and his glory. Your public fervent worship does not hide your hidden... It doesn't cover your hidden sin. It doesn't balance out. And listen, this is not a call to perfection. Because First John reminds us that when we sin, we have an advocate that we turn to. To forgive us. And the final thing here is this. That that living water, that stream of life-giving water in a, in a broken, dry, and weary place, like there, like here except for the last month, right? Like is this water right, that's life-giving, you don't have to well it up. You don't have to create love for others. You don't have to create this stream of righteousness or justice and make it happen and force it to happen, Right? Because in Christ, we are connected to the source. John 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then if we turn over just a couple of pages to John 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In Christ, you are connected to the Spirit. In Christ, you are connected to the source of all of this. And it is living water that we get to offer. It is not us, right? It's not that we say, hey, you need more of Jeremy. Be like Jeremy. So we need Jesus. And we are connected to the source. And we get to offer justice and righteousness, and hope, and peace, and transformation, all of which are found in Christ, even to the least of these. Right? So that God would look at our songs that we sing, and He's not going to say, man, you sang the right words. Had the right arrangements. Man, you showed up 43 weeks in a row. He's going to say, did you reflect my image of justice and righteousness? To those in your world. And then did you come to the source. To the king. 
to rightly reflect him and then to give praise and glory. That we're not patting ourselves on our back. That we're saying, Jesus, thank you. Church, that's what Amos is calling the people to. It's what we're being called to. They don't respond. Maybe individuals, but as a nation, they did not respond. And they will be led into exile within a generation. Would we respond this morning to our king who is calling us to rightly reflect him? I'm going to pray for us. The band is going to come back up. We would just invite you to let the spirit minister for a few moments. There will be some men and women in the back of the room. If you need someone to talk with or to pray with, they're back there for that. Um, And then when the band begins to sing, you're invited to stand and to sing. If you need to sit, you do that. Would we respond in obedience to our king this morning, however he leads, for his sake, for his name, for his glory? Let's pray.